0: The Human Experience Hello, I'm Professor Catherine Colborne, the Head of the School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle in Australia. Our school is dedicated to assisting our students to become critical thinkers, enabling them to appreciate and understand the world around them. Our researchers examine all facets of what it means to be human we form partnerships with like-minded groups and researchers. This podcast series, The Human Experience, explores important questions about humanity, society and current events. Join us for thought-provoking conversations with our humanities and social science scholars who are helping to improve the human experience through their research. Hi, I'm Cathy Colborne, and today we're talking to Professor Penny-Jane Burke. Penny-Jane is Global Innovation Chair of Equity and Director of the Centre of Excellence for Equity in Higher Education at the University of Newcastle. Her sustained commitment to generating research and practice that makes a difference has generated an extensive body of work to uncover the hidden and lived experiences that shape educational access, experience and participation, and to identify ways to overcome inequalities at policy and institutional levels of change. The impact of Penny-Jane's work is reflected in her numerous international keynotes, policy advice and major volumes shaping the field of higher education. So thank you so much for joining us today, Penny.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Cathy.
0: So Penny, we're going to have a conversation today about your work as a sociologist of education. Your work in this field was inspired by personal experience.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about your personal
0: pathway to university? Well,
1: I discovered a pathway into higher education as a mature student after experiencing an intensely traumatic life experience of domestic violence. And this took me far away from my family and friends to another country. So um, I grew up in California but at this time I was in England and I was taking my son, my, my little son, to a mother and toddler group when someone told me about access to higher education and this program was absolutely incredible. It completely changed my life and it gave me hope for my future. It was there I discovered sociology which enabled me to find a language to articulate my strong passion for social justice. I went on to do my degree and I met so many women who really inspired me with their immense tenacity to access higher education against the odds. This really fired my passion for equity in higher education and sociology offered a powerful lens to shape the field. At the time, in the, in the late 1990s, when I started my PhD, this was a new field, completely a new field of study, and sociology enabled me to articulate the important relationship between material, cultural, and symbolic inequalities, and how these profoundly shape our sense of personhood in and through educational experiences, and how education can be both a powerful site of social reproduction, but also a powerful force of social transformation.
0: Penny, it's so interesting to hear you talk about the way your education inspired you to think and it gave you a language uh, through which to kind of understand the world and see the world. So I'd love to hear you describe for us, for our listeners, how you think about equity as a sociologist.
1: Well, I think it's, it's incredibly important because sociology is so crucial to understanding equity um, because, of course, equity is really about social inequalities. Put simply, we can't understand equity without understanding inequity. Through two decades of my research in this field, I've developed a praxis-based approach to equity in order to build on and further develop key sociological insights about the way inequalities are produced through educational spaces and how these key insights can affect significant change in our educational systems, cultures, and practices for equity. Yet much of the time equity is considered in quite reductive and tokenistic ways, For example, in terms of simply counting how many students from disadvantaged backgrounds are participating in university study or through a deficit and flawed imagining that the problem lies in the poor aspirations or the poor choices or skills of disadvantaged students. A projection of the problem of social inequality on the bodies of those who experience social inequality um, is a really flawed and distorted picture. This kind of logic will never achieve the ambitious aim of creating an equitable higher education system. Ensuring that students from underrepresented backgrounds have access to higher education is paramount, but this is far more than accounting exercise. We need also to understand how educational institutions reproduce, reflect, and legitimize the knowledge, histories, personhoods, and experiences of more socially privileged groups in society. Those from underrepresented backgrounds, such as low socioeconomic status and indigenous students, are expected to transform themselves to fit into the dominant conventions, values, cultures, and ways of being that are legitimized through institutions such as higher education. And this is a form of symbolic violence and often becomes internalized in personal experience as a sense of shame, as a sense of not feeling smart enough or good enough or a feeling of not belonging. Sociology is an analytical lens that can help us to reframe the problem of equity not in terms of what individuals lack but in terms of how we might transform education as a project of social justice. This will not only benefit individuals but also to help ensure that higher education can contribute to society in broader terms including but also extending beyond the economy. Understanding that university students and staff are not simply human resources, but are human beings. It's so
0: interesting to hear you say that because I've uh, recently been witnessing and hearing a lot about people's wider cynicism about demand-driven funding and debates around that that are raging on social media at the moment that have been – I've been finding it quite hard to understand why uh, there is such cynicism given the the access to education is, is so important. So it's really interesting to hear you say that. And and on the theme of higher education, you've been involved in higher education leadership for a number of years now, so both internationally and in Australia here in Newcastle. So I'm sure that you've speculated about something you'd like to change. What's one thing you wish you could change uh, that would have a real impact on access to education?
1: Well, I think the the kind of broad framework in which leadership is, is being constructed and understood. I think leadership in higher education is way too often being driven by corporate, commercialized and business logics in which education is viewed as a commodity or product, staff are viewed as human resources, and students are viewed as customers or clients. Leadership underpinned by these kinds of drivers I think is deeply flawed and pushes us to lose sight of the key and fundamental mission of higher education which is to nurture learning and to generate knowledge and understanding about key issues of our times and for our collective and individual future sustainability. Higher education should be a space in which to also push the boundaries on what it is to be a leader in the contemporary world and in relation to the complex challenges we face. The humanities and social sciences have an absolutely key role to play in this. We can't think about equity without thinking about leadership. Our leaders are fundamental in creating the conditions for greater equity and social justice. Key questions for us to be asking might include How might we bring sociological and, say, philosophical insights to bear on how leadership is being understood? How might this embed a strong ethics of empathy and equity? How might we develop leadership that develops greater collaboration and recognizes our deep interdependency rather than being modeled on toughness, exclusiveness, and individual competition? How might leaders work to ensure the inclusion of communities who have historically been excluded from influential institutions such as higher education? How might we build greater equity and sustainability through these kinds of processes? And how can we draw on interdisciplinary insights across the arts, humanities, and social sciences, but in conversation with science, technology, engineering, and mathematics to create leadership for more peaceful, sustainable, and socially just futures? So in my view, we need to shift the focus of leadership in higher education from the distractions of commercialization and marketization to explicit sets of educational principles that enrich our society, collective health and well-being, and generate parity of participation in knowledge formation and across our society.
0: Thank you so much. That's a a, a grand set of of aims and ambitions. And these are things that you're exploring in your role as Director of the Centre of Excellence for Equity in Higher Education. So I'm interested to hear you describe the role of that centre, both uh, at the University of Newcastle, but also more broadly.
1: Thank you. Well, um, we're really trying to model some of these ideas um, and to embed them into the whole structure and framework of... Of the center, but actually the center is decentered in that it's reaching out beyond its core team. So we do have a core team, but we're we're reaching out to collaborate across a range of groups, networks, and communities, and working together in collaborative ways to create transforma- uh, transformative change for equity and social justice across all of our practices, both in but also beyond higher education. So that might include schools, but it also might Mm. include wider community practices, community organizations, and other social institutions, as well as public policy. The role is to build capacity across research and practice. So bringing these domains together through what I'm calling praxis, you know, embedded in a kind of long history of thinking around this notion of praxis. But the idea is to create the space, time, and resources to enable critical reflection and critical action to come together in order to challenge the educational structures and cultures that are reproductive of longstanding social and cultural inequalities. So we're working to bring to light the hidden assumptions, values and practices that are embedded in histories and relations of social injustices. And we do this through a range of different programs, ways of working, Um, underpinning that is the notion of parity of participation and developing methodologies that are working to create spaces in which we can work collaboratively um, because change can only happen if we work together.
0: Thank you. So all of these wonderful things that uh, we see around us in the university at the moment are generated, I think, by a concern for students, the difficulties that students are facing at the current time in universities. And this is sector-wide, the challenges that that students are facing. And they're facing those uh, challenges as they navigate uh, what is increasingly a, a difficult terrain of university study. So how would you describe or how do you understand those challenges for students today? Can you summarise what you think they are?
1: Well, of course, students are being faced with multiple challenges. So um, this is a very brief sort of um, capture of of some of the kind of key challenges that we know that students are facing in contemporary higher education and also, of course, in um, in their wider lives. But examples include the financial pressures that are being placed on students' But this is as a result of the neoliberalism of higher education um, and also its marketization, which places greater pressure on students um, to fund higher education effectively. But students also, as a result of this, have to juggle their studies with paid work. Um, Many have also a range of other unpaid work commitments that are less visible to us but are. Um, important parts of their lives, and that might include, for example, caring commitments um, or other kinds of pressures. Also, the future is really uncertain for students in a rapidly changing labor market um, with increasing competition within many fields while students are also accumulating debt. Many students also don't have access to family and friends with experience of university study so although they might have a lot of support emotionally from their family and friends, they might not have that kind of advice that comes with generations of experience of um, academic study for example. Um, also, together with that, students might not have access to a range of resources that more socially privileged students have access to. Those might be networks, they might be access to private tutoring, they could also be access to um, being able to pay for childcare, for example, or for a car to, to um, have transportation to um, university. Um, and some students might have to travel a very long way to get to class. Um, many students have also had really negative experiences of education previously and are having to overcome those as they build their sense of capability as university students. So with all of these different kinds of challenges, if we are really serious about building greater equity, we need to embed it, equity, in all of our practices including, for example, high quality teaching. That's really, really crucial. Um, And that's so we can support really diverse student um, bodies and cohorts. And so we need the um, resources to also support our staff. Um, It's really important that staff have the professional development to develop high quality teaching approaches and strategies um, because all of this is kind of interconnected. The, The struggles that students face also are the struggles in a way that that Um, university teachers face in supporting them and they also need support to be able to develop the strategies in a in a different kind of context in which we're faced in contemporary higher education but also I think equity must not be peripheral to the mission of the university it must be foregrounded as a key dimension of our educational vision of our educational strategy and also our practices
0: Mm. I'm really glad you talked about the pressures faced by academic staff as well, because in our disciplines, in the disciplines of the humanities and social sciences, there's a real premium placed on time, on time to read, time to develop ideas, to share them with peers, both as researchers, but also as teachers. And I think both academic staff, but particularly students, find, uh, you know, finding time is a real challenge and making time to study so um the center has done some really interesting research about this theme i wonder if you might want to comment on that
1: Mm. and i think you know time is something that we really take for granted we don't think of it as an equity issue but it is an equity issue both for staff and students and even just coming back to the last comment i made in order to develop those teaching strategies um, staff do need some time to be able to reflect on what they're doing and, um, and to develop their thinking about why they're, they're teaching in particular ways and who their students are and how they might address um, the concerns around equity that I've raised. Um, But there's a very strong focus on individual responsibility in the contemporary university and on notions of preparedness, um, which kind of fix this idea that we can once and for all prepare people for whatever challenges that they might be confronted in in as they transition through their their journey. Um, But we often fail to address the wider context in which students participate in higher education so we emphasize the need for individual students and staff, actually, to develop good time management skills. I think that this completely overlooks that students have very different and unequal relations to time, and our research reinforces that, that, um, that point. Students might struggle to get to class on time, not because of lack of motivation, but because of the pressures on their life outside of study distance from campus, or lack of access to resources that might free up their time to study. But we often misrecognize those social disadvantages as a lack of motivation, confidence, or capability, based on flawed assumptions about good time management. For students who have already experienced discrimination or exclusion at school, This can significantly undermine their sense of belonging at university or their sense of identity as a university student. This is exacerbated by discourses of dumbing down, especially when students have had to struggle with distorted constructions of who they are around damaging language such as dumb, being called dumb, um, either in their previous experiences or in their present ones. And experiences of feeling dumb are most likely attached to not having access to high-quality educational opportunities and resources than any kind of reflection of capability, of of kind of innate capability. Um, And also having the time to develop certain knowledge and skills um, valued in educational institutions, so some students have had years of being able to have private tutoring, um, really high quality educational access to develop those skills that make them appear to be capable students in higher education. Others haven't had that opportunity. So some, you know, we need to have different kinds of time rhythms um, to understand the differences um, for different students in relationship to that. We need to also have more sophisticated ways of understanding equity issues that go beyond deficit notions that the student simply lacks time management skills to understand temporal inequalities. So our research has really tried to cast light on this notion of temporal inequality. And also the, the relationship of temporal inequality to material ones. So, you know, not having access to a car to get to university has implications for temporal inequality, for example. We also must resist leaping to quick-fix answers that focus on a single strategy, such as simply creating greater flexibility. Our research shows that students benefit from frameworks that have a balance between structure and flexibility. So we tend to go to extremes, either, you know, extreme structure or extreme flexibility without, without balancing between the two. And of course we need to think about time for staff in terms of workload management um, without paying attention to the important aspects of relationality in pedagogical experience. So you know, the, the time that it takes to develop um, carefully um, and thoughtfully and ethically Um, uh, formed relationships with students um, is is really important to um, nurture a sense of belonging for students. Um, Good teaching requires the development of ethical, meaningful relationships and that enables connection with the curriculum and also with others as part of the learning process and this of course takes time We need time to critically reflect on learning and teaching if we're going to make sense of what pedagogical approaches are equitable, ethical, and meaningful. Students and staff require time to deepen the learning process to avoid overly instrumentalized or functional approaches that focus too narrowly on outcomes and not on the processes of learning itself. So our, our research showed that, you know, students are often pressurized to make choices about where to emphasize their time and they tend to do that around assessment because of the focus on outcomes and then they lose the quality of the experience of the processes of engaging in learning which is a shame for um, students from underrepresented backgrounds not to have those opportunities
0: I'm really struck as you speak um, by the sort of richness of your analysis as a sociologist of education of all of these topics that we might sort of some of us at least, take for granted in a way, you know, time to study, but actually it means so much more. So thinking as a sociologist of education, how do you understand the future of universities, of higher education itself?
1: Well, I think we're constantly thinking about this and we often project an understanding of the future of higher education through dominant discourses at play in the present. Um, So we make all sorts of assumptions and this can lead to significant decisions being made that sometimes are not particularly well thought through. We might make assumptions about what kinds of pedagogical spaces are needed, for example, and then invest millions of dollars creating new buildings that are based on those assumptions and not on sound and rigorous pedagogical research. We take certain logics about the future and make decisions based on these and not on other considerations. So for example, in the current framing of higher education as a business and as driven by economic logics, we might exclude from consideration the implications of ongoing inequalities for the future of our society. If we don't pay attention, for example, to gender inequalities, it's likely that these will be be reproduced for generations to come with real and ongoing consequences for all of us. If we don't pay attention to questions of environmental sustainability and its relationship to poverty and inequality, then higher education will unwittingly play a role in ongoing environmental uh, degradation And this will have an impact on the poorest communities who are then excluded from knowledge formation about the shape of our future. So my understanding is that we need to take very seriously the question of the future of higher education beyond narrow economic and business oriented perspectives and understand the future of higher education as one which is about contributing to the future of our humanity and our world. And for these reasons, I believe we need to take a critical and deep approach to equity and social justice in, in the ways we think about the future and how higher education has a key role to play.
0: Thank you. And you'll be interested, if, if you don't know already, I'm sure you do, that um, the UN Sustainable Development Goals are being used now in university rankings, You know, which is so fascinating to see at, at this point in history. So, finally, Penny, what does it mean to you to be a professor? You've had a wonderful career and you arrived in Australia already as a professor. What what does that mean to you?
1: Well, I've thought about this a lot because I think that all of these kinds of um, achievements are also deep responsibilities, Um, and I try to um, approach my role as professor through a deeply reflexive um, orientation. Um, and think about some of the kinds of ways that equity and inequity gets reproduced through particular understandings of who a professor is. And historically, the professor is a particular kind of body. And that particular kind of body carries with it um, assumptions about who can have authority, who can have knowledge, um, who is seen to be powerful. uh, who knows, in a sense. Um, and so it's really important as women um, that we um, think very carefully about the embodiment of being a professor, how we do professor. And I think that it's quite important for to me um, that I I live those politics and the way in which I embody my professorship, um, which might mean that I think carefully about the way I dress. I try to dress in a way that... Um, contest some of the conventions of the professorial body um, to try to dress in more feminized ways, to say that there are, there are different expressions that we might be able to um, carry in the professor body, that we don't need to conform to the conventional ones. Um, that doesn't mean that all women professors should dress in feminine ways, but it's one aspect of our, of our expression that might be available to us as, as women professors, for example. Um, but it's also really important that um, through the embodiment of a different kind of expression of professor, that we're showing that there's other, um, other bodies that can carry authority, um, other ways of knowing, other ways of, um, of contributing to knowledge formation. And so I think that as part of that, it's about Um, that senior role in university, and how we can do leadership differently as well as as professors. Um, And that means to me, um, thinking about how to develop non-competitive orientations um, to uh, being a professor, um, trying to support um, my colleagues, um, women as well as men, um, being a mentor and taking that role very seriously. Um, uh, Having empathy and understanding and not casting judgment on people who aren't um, being academics in the same way that I am. Um, And all of that takes a lot of exercise of reflexivity. So I'm not perfect. But these are the things that I'm trying to work towards on a daily basis. And I think that those are powerful things in terms of how we can contribute to the future of higher education, thinking about a more equitable higher education, thinking about other ways of being a professor, Um, using the influential and powerful position of professor in ways that actually supports people who don't have access to those positions, and being able to voice some of the concerns that I have around equity and social justice from that authoritative role.
0: Thank you so much. It's a very powerful position to speak from, I think. So I've been talking to Professor Penny-Jane Burke and I'd just like to end by by thanking Penny Jane. And Penny, it sounds like your leadership of all these questions of equity and education at the University of Newcastle and indeed nationally and internationally is very dynamic and definitely supporting a great many people in our wider community. So thank you for being part of our conversation today.
1: Thank you so much, Cathy, for giving me this opportunity. I've enjoyed it. Thank you.